0: Incorporating AI into your business can be a delicate balance between speed and intelligence. That's why you might want to consider the Claude 3 family models from Anthropic for your enterprise AI. Haiku is their light and fast model, Opus is their most powerful model capable of high order thinking, and Sonnet is the best combination of both speed and intelligence. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com/slash Claude C-L-A-U-D-E today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic.
1: Hi, hey everyone. From New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast
2: Network, this is On with Kara Swisher, and I'm Kara Swisher. And I'm Naima Raza. Today, we're going to be talking about big tech's effect on democracy. Yeah. That was the topic of this conversation with Alexis Ohanian and Ben Roy, which was reported live last week at an event by UVA's Carsh Institute for Democracy. How do you get roped into it, Kara? Uh, well, I know Evan Smith, who runs it, uh, who's helped run it with them. Evan Smith, previously of Texas Tribune
1: fame. Yeah, he's been working on it and a bunch of other people there. And uh, Alexis Ohanian and I have gone back a long way and talked about this issue for, I would say, decades. And obviously, Deb Roy from MIT, who's been studying this for a long time, and obviously things have degenerated. And so
2: I thought it was a good time to do this. Um, well, let's chat about our guests. The first one is Alexis Ohanian. He's uh, most famous, of course, for being Serena Williams' husband. No, he's not. That's I'm not. kidding. Uh, he is a noted startup founder, most famously for Reddit, which he co-founded in the year 2005. And these days, he's mostly investing under 776 Capital and 776 Foundation. Um, I would venture that he made it to a chapter in your book called People I Like. Um, he didn't, but he, he, did. he is someone I like. No, I
1: can't list all of them, but he is—he's a, a really interesting person, and he's changed and and morphed over the time period, which I appreciate mm-hmm. as he's seen things. And he—he uh, he left Reddit. He also is someone who uh, who I think has been very thoughtful about where everything's going. And he's someone that you've interviewed a bunch, I think, over the. Over many years, years, many times, yeah. many years, when he was much younger, when he started the company, I think when they sold it, uh, or a piece of it. And so, uh, you know, and I've interviewed all the different CEOs, including Ellen Powell, and now Steve Huffman, who was one of the mm-hmm. other founders. Um, so I've been following Reddit, they've had a really interesting journey, a much smaller social media site, um, much more controversial, originally sort of had was the original problem on the Internet because of yeah. uh, racist and uh, other other tropes.
2: And then um, the Donald Trump phenomenon in the Donald 2016 Trump. election, they came under immense scrutiny and they they cleaned up the house a little bit under a, Alan A little Powell. bit. It's, it's
1: hard to clean up that house a lot. But I have to say they've taken a stand where others have not with a lot mm-hmm. less resources um, and still controversial. There's still all kinds of things happening with its moderators who are unpaid. Um, it's just a really interesting conversation community, and it's one of the original ones. Um, and so they've struggled over the years, but also have been thoughtful. Again, not perfect, but it's definitely evolved over time. And I, I like to talk to them because they're very honest, as opposed to other companies like Facebook or
2: others who try to
1: shave things off of a very difficult situation.
2: Our second guest is Deb Roy. He's a professor at MIT, where he leads their Center for Constructive Communication. His work really focuses on understanding machine learning, algorithms. And how all of that impacts the conversations we are having online and how we engage with each other. He's trying to put all of that in practice. And the CEO of Cortico, this is this conversation platform he's co-founded with the intent of bringing, quote, unheard voices to the center of stronger civic spaces. Yeah. He
1: went out and actually talked to real people about talking. You know, Mm -hmm. he went to the Midwest and he went across the country um, trying to have conversations in person and then was trying to mimic them online. Like, how do you do that? I think he has a lot of um, concepts that I think are very smart. The idea that um, you shouldn't talk about facts and opinions, you should talk about personal experiences. And so he was trying to bring what was physical
2: into digital, which is more difficult. Yeah. He recently had this Atlantic article, the internet could be so good, really. As the headline suggests, it was really a plea to kind of get away from the spectacle and entertainment of our current social media. And he wanted to build a more, I guess, benevolent model. Um, He outlines a vision where where you're actually rewarding listening and he kind of muses that maybe it could even be publicly funded or a nonprofit model or some alternative to ad-supported social media. Uh, What do you think of that
1: vision? I think it's interesting. I don't think it's possible. I agree the Internet could have been a great place, and it's not. Mm. Um, It's degenerated to the worst of our uh, basest impulses, and you see that everywhere, no matter where, whatever the topic happens to be. And so I think it's quite difficult because it also has a business model that that encourages what's happening, which is... um, Enragement.
2: The nonprofit or publicly funded bit he threw into that article in The Atlantic, it reminded me of Naomi Klein talking about how, you know, the yeah. BBC, why couldn't the BBC be moderating something like Twitter? Um, like Naomi Klein, Deb Roy is Canadian. <laughs> yeah, maybe they, all. They, want, they want a better way. But, you know, they have a
1: point. This was the original uh, sin of the Internet, and I think mm-hmm. most people agree, uh, including Alexis, is that it was an advertising-based medium and then run by people who had no accountability and had, had, were, had shareholders in mind. And so um, that's one of the things. I, I don't think this is possible at this point. I, I, although, you know, one of the only things is young people aren't doing this stuff
2: except in a way, so maybe it'll just die. Part of it is that it taps into our psyches and this deep part of human nature, right? The internet unleashes something. It's not just the business model that's broken. I think they changed the construction of it so that it
1: encouraged this. And so when you're at a school board meeting now, it, it degenerates. When you're at in public, when you're at any San Francisco meeting, it degenerates. If That's been going on for decades. Um, but I think in when you're in conversation with real people uh, in real time, I think it is much better. They're typically much better conversations. So it's a question of whether
2: you can move that to online or not. All right, speaking of conversations, let's take a quick break and we'll be back in conversation with Alexa Zohanian and Deb Roy, taped live at the Paramount Theater in Charlottesville.
3: Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration for teams to accomplish what could otherwise be impossible alone
4: Thank you. Let's start talking about what's happening now because I think it's a perfect example of misinformation and disinformation, and I want to start with that because this is a big moment again where social media has failed us, where it's worrisome, it has real world impacts. Um, let's start with you, uh, Alexis, having started Reddit.
0: It's my fault.:
4: It's your fault. well.
0: Yeah. I don't blame you
4: for everything, but just some of it. (laughs) Um, Talk a little bit about where you see us now, because it doesn't feel like a lot has progressed, and it's still problematic.
0: Yeah, yeah. It really, hopefully you all know, three years ago, I resigned pretty publicly in in protest from the board of Reddit. I had some differences of opinion on moderation and, you know, wanted to crack down on communities about violence and hate. Um, The good news is the company did, a month later, you know, ban those communities, replacement of the director of color, did those things. and, And I think it has gotten demonstrably better as well as better for the business, which shouldn't surprise anyone since. But yes, the the genie that social media opened up, um, especially in the context of this war going on right now, it is bringing out, it has gamified the worst parts of our nature in many ways. And I think we're now in this state where even the most storied journalists, I grew up, the New York Times is an important newspaper in our household, are rushing to compete with user-generated content. Indeed. And there's business reasons for it. There's human nature reasons. I remember in 2005 starting Reddit, sitting in the offices of the New York Times, a friend of mine who was a journalist, and one of her peers came over very excited because her article had just hit, I think, it was most, top five most emailed articles, right? Yep. We have something about us. And, and this is not to say it's, it's not an integrity thing. It's just, as humans. We like winning. <laughs> we like these leaderboards. And if I could see it in 2005 when it was just, hey, I made the top five emailed stories of the day list, now there's so much pressure to be first. And UGC, user-generated content, will always win. It won't right. always be right, though. Right. But it becomes the epicenter of where the conversation is. And then I'll think, what percentage of our population really wants to earnestly take the breath and say, let me stop doom scrolling and let me just wait until people can do the work, synthesize it, and then help me react. Because we've all been so trained and conditioned now to just get the likes, get the retweets, get the upvotes. And I do think, last part of my monologue, the way people talked about media and storytelling during the Vietnam War and how, you know, that war was on the news every night and it brought it into Americans' living rooms. I think this is going to, this feels like that turning point in our consciousness when we realize, my God, like we are so plugged in to all of these storylines, whether it's from traditional media, whether it's from user-generated someone on their phone, you know, posting to a Telegram group, we are overwhelmed and overloaded. And it's unfortunately appealing to the worst parts of a lot of our instincts.
4: It's not just that, it's monetization. Deb, talk a little bit about this in your article. um, Tell them your title of your article.
5: It changed a couple of times. Oh,
4: okay, what was the <laughs> one it ended
5: up at? The, the internet testing. could actually be good, really. The, actually, good the internet place. could
4: actually be good, really. I completely agree with no. you. Um, many years ago, when I was interviewing Steve Jobs, he was like, I'd like it to be Star Trek, and it's ter- and, and I said, and it's turned out to be Star Wars, mm. um, yeah. which is a very different viewpoint. Star Trek, everybody comes together, it's diverse, It's they, they take villains and make them better. Star Wars, the bad guy tends to win quite a bit. Um, and I thought about that, like the way it turned. So talk a little bit about this, because what's happening now in this conflict is people are actually making money by doing inaccurate and putting up the most repulsive videos, the most inaccurate videos. It, they're getting monetized for it on X or on called Twitter. I don't care. I don't care what he wants to call it. It's called Twitter. Um, I'm gonna later he's gonna tell us what the original name of, of Reddit was oh, yeah. gonna be. Uh, I'm also calling Meta. Facebook, I don't care either, I don't care what they do. Um, but it's monetizable. Ta- you talked a little bit about this. Is the original sin most people feel was advertising?
5: Yeah, and if you go back, so let's, let's call it Facebook and Twitter, um, we all originally learned that these were social networks. And at some point, if you think about it, we, we learned that it's actually social media, not social networks. That changed just in our language. Um, if you think about, why we changed gears. It was because these two companies in particular figured out a business model by just adopting the media model. And so, yes, that came with advertising, and you could now with X also try to do subscription. But the basic idea of the media model is a broadcast model. And so, Back to competition, one way to talk about winning is being first. Another is to build the biggest audience. There's nothing wrong with building an audience, but if that is your only way to communicate, um, you're going to transform from a social network to social media, where now the, the point of the platform shifts fundamentally from connection between people at a social level to some people emerging and having a platform, having an audience. And then you take away all of the gatekeepers, and incentivize certain kinds of behavior, even if it's not purposeful, uh-huh. um, where the fact that disinformation um, wins um, in terms of capturing attention, um, in some ways, is just a byproduct. It wasn't the intention, necessarily, of the people designing the platforms. Right. Although, but just,
4: in some ways, you think, what did they think was going to happen, you know?
5: Honestly, I'm not sure. That, I don't
4: think they thought at all. I'll be honest, I was there. They didn't think at all.
5: I don't, I think, and, and, you know, I've, I've had conversations with Tim Berners-Lee, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, thinking yep. about what would be the consequences um, at scale of the World Wide Web. This and, is the creator of
4: the World Wide Web. And there
5: was, in general, an assumption that with more connection, we come together. It seems actually pretty intuitive. Sure. The possibility, the Star
4: Trek.
5: The possibility yeah. that with more connection, we could actually come apart is pretty counterintuitive. right and but if you take the media model sandwich it in a social network you get this completely new it's it's not the media industry anymore right something transformed uh, far more powerful in many ways but where um provocative extreme points of view strong opinions just tend to get the most traction
4: we're going to talk a little bit about that in a second. But, but when you were starting Reddit, what was the... You, you, you were the free-speechiest free-speecher I met and, and, and <laughs> of all of them. Really? Yeah. Are you sure it was me? Completely sure.
0: Okay. Um, I think... I, can, I certainly can't speak for Zuck or Jack or any of those other folks. Um, 2005, I'm an undergrad at UVA. And the only reason I started a startup was because I walked out of the LSAT and knew I didn't want to be a lawyer. Okay. I stumbled into Reddit in part because I ran a PHP BB forum in college. And it was like 600 people. uh, And it was a fun, vibrant community. And I always felt online community was as real as offline because that's how I learned to program when I was a dorky kid in my parents' basement because strangers on the internet would help. Right. Uh, I was in a Quake 2 clan and playing video game, collaborative video games with strangers on the internet. And I, I, I believed in that and really did not even conceive of Reddit potentially being a multi-billion dollar business or having hundreds of millions of users because it was so ludicrous, hard to believe. But in 2005, no one wanted to start a startup. It was the least interesting thing you could possibly do. And so the idea that this thing that everyone t- is telling you is a terrible idea could be so successful it would affect elections and democracies was, it it was ludicrous. So I genuinely had no expectation that it could be that successful for better and for worse.
4: So, but did you think about implications of democracy? I mean, this is what this topic is.
0: I mean, imagine that, right? Like most people I met when I told them the story of Reddit, smart, well-informed media people told me one, no one will ever care what random people on the internet think and two, That sounds like a terrible idea, but good luck. (laughs) So the idea that I could go from that feedback from experts to then think, my God, I'm going to be so successful. It could have a tremendous impact on democracy would take a level of delusion that even I, as a first time CEO, just couldn't have. It it was literally not even on the radar. And and was that a blind spot? Absolutely. Um, And it's one that I think we will see play out, and I hope in the best ways. I've certainly since resigning tried to make a very good faith effort to, to, you know, put my energy in my platform to having a good story for my kids when they grow up. Um, But the one thing that has been illuminated for me, like even this university is a product of the enlightenment, which is only a few hundred years old. As a species, we have understood truth way, way longer as being what the people sitting next to me around the campfire say is true because we've broken bread or we've shed blood together or we've had kids together. Like the ability to scale ideas and the idea of trusting an abstract institution is actually a really foreign concept for us as human beings. And so the part that I am coming more to terms with is as we now have all these collisions, it's not, okay, it's unreasonable to me and probably for all of us here to think that there's a community of thriving people who believe the earth is flat. Harris? There's a few on Reddit. Pretty big. There's, but there's millions, a whole documentary but Go about ahead, it. sure. In 2023, millions of people who believe the world is flat, and we sit here thinking, that is crazy. But these people earnestly, seriously believe it. And when you ask them why, they go back to the same fundamental principles our species believe, which is this person I trust, these YouTube channels, these people who I f- believe in, they think it's true and I trust them. And I actually think, from first principles, it's, it's a wonderful miracle we were able to get to a place where we could just trust an institution to say that like, this is what experts think. I think that's helped a lot of amazing things. Believe me, I, I love those things. I just now worry about this next phase because all of those institutions have been shaken. And the part that actually appeals to us as a homo sapien is now readily available on the internet to revalidate to these whatever things yeah Even and they, are, they are real.
4: Yeah. I did think it was a great idea because I saw it happening at AOL on a very on a big basis where people would meet online and then form good communities in some mm-hmm. cases uh, quilters, particularly, they had met online. They had created a quilt, a big AOL logo. Then they went to AOL headquarters when I was there and presented it to Steve Case. And they were friends, had never met, mm-hmm. and it was such a transformative moment for me. And they, and rel- know, this was quilting, so it was, you know, it would later turn into a white supremacy group. But no I'm <laughs> kidding. <laughs> but they and sure made nice quilts. Law. Yeah. Um, but. Um, but it was really, I remember it. I was like, oh yeah, of course, this is the way it's going. And at the same time, and Deb, I'd love you to talk about this, part of it is good. That's the part you're talking about in this article that you could form, I, I do wanna talk about the problems, but you feel like it could've gone a different way, that it would be more community-based, that it could be this face-to-face interaction, even though some community things lately, especially you know town meetings have devolved into the internet now.
5: Yeah, I think scale is really important, and there's different ways to achieve scale. I mean, well, we, most of what we, you know, just going back to what you're saying, that we know and trust, we don't have the expertise or the direct ability to verify ourselves. So if trust decays, everything falls apart. Yeah. So having small scale networks, that's one of the things that I talk about in the article. Is, explain what it, that would mean. Um, I went to towns. We, um, Got out of Cambridge and went to parts of rural uh, America. And it was very difficult, actually, to get the meetings with community leaders in some of these small towns to just sit down and have a conversation about um, what's the view of, you know, in this town as it relates to the media environment in your state. You know, we were in places in upstate in Iowa, in Wisconsin, and I had come off of uh, doing a a project with colleagues at MIT and studying the view from Twitter of the 2016 presidential election. And what we found was, although we had literally access to the fire hose, we were analyzing billions of tweets, um, we were seeing a very fragmented graph, a social graph, of people who are hardly talking to each other. when we were pressed for insights into why people were tweeting the way they were, voting the way they were, um, pretty limited insights (laughs) for large swaths of uh, of voters um, that were different than- So
4: they were missing. So Twitter isn't real life, incredible.
5: They were missing or they were, it was this uh, polarized extreme view where much of the nuance of what were actually going on in people's lives, uh, we sure as that couldn't tell from looking at, at tweets. And so that led us to, Uh, try to get out of Cambridge, uh, which has its political biases, and get into other parts, other communities around the country. Um, And it was extraordinarily difficult to um, uh, convince people to actually spend time with us, right? right? And finding intermediaries that trusted us, that could get folks from some of these towns together. What you
4: found was that in-person discussions
5: worked well. And it doesn't take much to just explain a little bit of why you're having the conversation, some prompts to open up a conversation. One of the things we've learned now over the years, um, when it's a hot topic, don't ask people for their opinions. And facts actually don't help either if you're trying to establish some common ground. Instead ask, what is your experience as it relates to this issue? And if you draw from your own personal experience, uh, it turns out, this is known in a lot of science recently, that uh, empathy, trust, respect, they all go up when you hear someone, even where it's obvious you don't agree with their point of view because you can tell from the story they're sharing. Right. The fact that they're sharing um, authentically what they've experienced, yep. all of those kind of... Um, but it, translating know, it,
4: I get that completely you know. because I have the weirdest relationship with Ken Buck that I never imagined. I couldn't agree with him less on everything. And we have a very good relationship because we started talking about personal experiences around Internet stuff. Um, but so I get that how that works, but translating it online.
5: So, uh, you know,
4: because people behave differently, whether they're anonymous, which I think has always been a a bane of these things, although sometimes it's a good thing. Um, and they just seem to lose their, I mean, Elon Musk is example one of losing your mind because of online discourse.
5: So this is again, where this idea of scale and having, when you have a small group, and it's a private space and there is some uh common experience or you know pre-existing trust um, that's the perfect condition so like an airlock you step yeah. into it and you can have a very different kind of conversation it's not performative um, it can be authentic the question is how do you then build scalable networks where some of what is said in that safe trusted space can actually be brought out and heard by others because if you can't do that we end up totally fractured you end up with
4: either trolling or feeling too embarrassed to say things right right and worry about
5: you have the real conversations in private but where's the public where's the public conversation where's the public discourse where's the public sphere if you don't have one or if it's left to uh whoever wins the game of broadcast basically where there's very few rules of what you can broadcast social media in other words that becomes our public sphere. So I think finding um, ways to create um, networks of different sizes that are connected where it's under the consent of people who are, them. Are, they create them to decide which parts of what I share um, am I? Well, that was
4: the premise, Alexis, of Reddit for a point, but it did get out of it. Like, What do you think happens when people are near each other and looking at each other, they tend to be nicer? that that is that makes sense in, in lots of ways how did it develop there and what did how did you watch it happen
0: so on the on the plus side the power of pseudonymity so i agree with you on anonymity where there's no accountability pseudonymity where you have a, a username fluffy bunny 12 not my username but an I'll example, bet. that is he's, he's, he's fluffy bunny
4: 13
0: you know me too well the 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 problem that it solves is now you have some notion of identity and accountability and so if you say dumb things you are punished because even though it's not your government name it's it's a pseudonym that that i believe in it is strong it is real and it allows people to open up and be more authentic and honest and the best parts of that behavior let people from all over the world come online and finally be their authentic self because they're not trying to show how perfect their life is on instagram they're trying to talk about how they're struggling with their marriage, or substance abuse, or things that you're not going to go when you're trying to talk about when you're trying to score internet points, but are really important reasons to connect. Or maybe it's silly, maybe like stapling bread to trees, which is a Reddit community. Like, fine, it doesn't hurt anyone. You staple bread on trees. Good it's luck. The
4: tree? Shout go out ahead. to
0: our ASL interpreter, doing an amazing job okay. having to describe stapling bread to trees. Um, but so that's the best part of it. And, <laughs> but, but the problem happens at scale, to your point, once you start talking about tens of millions and then hundreds of millions of people. Um, I think part of the reason we are so nostalgic about that OG sort of early internet is in part because there were fewer people on it. Right. And there was a higher threshold of whatnot to just get on and participate. And so on the one hand, as a product builder, I'm happy that more people now have access, right? I don't like the idea that the internet that I'm so nostalgic for was actually an ivory tower. But now that we have more people who have access, I have to live where we all have to deal with the sort of consequences of now being exposed in real time to people that we couldn't have even fathomed sitting around the campfire with. Again, as a species, like, this is a collision. We've we've been hardwired for, what, hundreds of thousands of years? to not expect to meet many people that we wouldn't see every day, right? Because we couldn't get on a plane. We, we were, <laughs> and if we, chances are, if we saw someone who's pretty different from us, we'd probably going to fight them for something. So I, I want to be an optimist about it. And I think there is still a path forward, but we're fighting against very, very strong human instincts. If we can solve it, it will do so much good. It really, really will, because we will find out we have more in common than not. Um, Bourdain, I know you can't scale the Anthony Bourdain experience, but one of the most compelling things about that show was the fact that he understood and communicated so well that if you broke bread with someone anywhere in the world, there was a common humanity and an ability to relate that I thought he communicated so well with no reservations. But it's that energy that I wish we could put on people's smartphones.
5: I was just going to add to that, that when you think about designing networks that do have scale, but actually address some of the lessons we've basically learned over the last 20 years. There's a, a wonderful book called The Pattern Language. It was a group of architects, and they spent about a decade studying our built environments to look for design patterns that seem to correlate with human flourishing. It's like a, a design guide with a set of a couple hundred patterns. Um, so one of them is called the Intimacy Gradient, and the reason I, I mention this is it's a way that we think about taking lessons from the physical environment where we're structuring um, how we live and interact and how we can bring that into the the world of networks. So the idea of the intimacy gradient is any well-designed space that could be a home, it could be an office, actually has a gradient of spaces that go from more public and accessible to the most private inner sanctum. And it's not just binary. So if you think about your home you would have
4: uh, your the, living the, room and your bedroom the
5: living room and then the kitchen and then the bedroom right and maybe even the, the porch and then the front yard in general uh, across cultures uh, if you look at architectural design there's mm. some notion of this kind of gradients and thresholds mm. well marked thresholds and when you get rid of them uh, people feel uneasy there's some you know the same thing happens in a in a work environment in an office you've got a a lobby, you've got conference rooms, you've got private offices. If you don't have the marked thresholds and the ability to move between um, things to fall apart, if you just say, let's just open it all up. Which is what's uh, happened. And so if you think about that metaphor, and let's go back to Facebook or Twitter, Facebook's actually the perfect example. Whatever the intimacy gradient was, it kept changing. Right? Because there was actually something else that the company was optimizing for. They're optimizing for how long you'd stay on platform. Okay, we gotta break up these social networks. We've got to bring content that you didn't even know you were interested in because it'll keep you on the platform. So as a, a network architecture, they were just there was no intimacy gradient. In some ways, the easiest thing to find were, were kind of the equivalent of people's bedrooms, the, the kind of individual sure. users. Right? Sure. We'll be back in a minute.
6: Support for On with Kara Swisher comes from Delete.me. Unfortunately, there's a very good chance that some of your private information is available on the internet for anyone to see. In fact, I'm sure of it. And even worse, to sell it. Your name, number, home address, and other private information might be floating on the internet without your knowledge. Delete Me is a subscription service that wipes your personal information from hundreds of people search databases on the web. Delete.me finds and removes personal information sold by data brokers that you don't want online and makes sure it stays off. You can tell Delete.me exactly what information you want deleted and their experts take it from there. They will send you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. I really have enjoyed Delete.me. It's been pretty shocking and I'm pretty good around uh, issues of my information online. But there was so much information all over the place. It was very easy to navigate. You can see right there on the Delete.me um, report that you get what is out there and what you need to do and pick and choose what you think is important to eliminate. You can take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. You can get 20% off your Delete Me plan today when you go to joindeleteme.com Kara and use the promo code Kara at checkout. Again, you can get 20% off by going to joindeleteme.com Kara and enter the code Kara at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com Kara, code Kara.
4: One of the issues is that They call it a public square, and it's not a public square. It's a private square owned by the richest people on Earth who have their own little quirks about what they find interesting um, and have thoughts on things and make decisions they're entirely incapable of making but don't think they are and do it anyway or else they don't care. And I'll give you two examples. One was when I was talking to Larry Page about the Google News, which they just laid off people today, which was interesting. And he was arguing with me that the New York Times, whatever you think of it, it's a good news institution, and some guy who's blogging are the same and we should present them the same. And I was like, you're crazy, it's not. You can't verify that, you can't do this. And he was like, well, let people decide. That's what he, he he literally said it just like that. He had some thoughts on IP that weren't quite good either. Um, But uh, that was one. And then the second was, when, when I was arguing with, I'm always arguing with someone um, about, about it being a public square and not a private square, uh, I think it was Mark Zuckerberg, actually. We were having an interview and we were talking about Alex Jones. And I was like, why haven't you kicked this guy off? He's, first of all, he's loathsome. Second of all, he's broken every one of your rules. And so why do you have rules at all if you're not going to enforce them? And he said, in a mistake of his, one of his many mistakes of his life, said, let's talk about the Holocaust. And I was like, oh, all right, if you insist. Um, And he started talking about it and said, Holocaust deniers, in the end, don't mean to lie. That's what he said. And I kept thinking he really should have finished that history course at Harvard, Um, (laughs) but okay. Um, And having been a propaganda studies major, I was like, oh, okay, all right, and just let him put it out, because he didn't know what he was talking about, and then Two years later, he came to the same conclusion I was handing him and blocked them, and then got into trouble for that, because then he had gotten people so used to not pulling things down that pulling things down was a problem. Same thing around Trump. So talk a little bit, Alexis, about the power of these people who are wholly inadequate to the task.
0: (laughs) Well, I guess as a former one of those people, or maybe I still am wholly inadequate, but I don't have the power. You did better
4: than most, but it's a low bar, but go ahead.
0: I appreciate that. I, I agree. I use the metaphor of, like, the Javits Center, where okay. an infinite Javits Center, which is a horrible, but if you've been to any conference or convention in New York, you've been in a horrible place. space. But you, horrible. It, it, infinite conference rooms, right? And if I run and own and operate the Javits Center, I'm implicitly saying, like, yeah, Pokemon convention, cool, your community can meet up here. KKK, you can wait. No, actually. Because all of a sudden Nathan's hot dogs is like, yo, we don't want to do business here. And you make a decision as a business owner. Your time, the, the, the public square one also falls flat because if that then implies that it's a public square, which means like what, a town or a city? If you're the person in charge of it, you're the mayor, but there's no democratic election. You're a CEO, so then you're like the king? Yes. So like, if you want to lean into the town square thing, fine, just own it and say, yeah, it's a town square and I am the yes, infinite dictator,
4: and tyrant of it. And yes. so
0: anyway, the, the metaphors get messy. I do agree on the, the principle. And I think at the end of the day, it was, it took too long to make those hard decisions because I think a lot of us, I'll just speak for myself, we really believe that in the long run, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Um, and I'll tell you actually, UVA story, I've never shared this publicly. So I'm Armenian, I grew up hearing the stories from my family in graphic detail of the, the, the rapes on the, the death marches of my family, of, of parents being beheaded. This is during the Armenian Genocide, it's 100 years ago. The country that did it, Turkey, still to this day, denies it ever happened. But it, I took for granted that the Armenian Genocide was a historical fact, because it was, it is. And UVA was where I first met a a very sweet Turkish student who was in my German class and we got to talking and and she was like, oh, you know, that didn't actually happen. And I looked at her and I was like, wait, no, you're at UVA. Like, no, no, no. I've heard stories of Turkish people who deny this existence, but you're, you're educated. You're here. And she calmly explained to me why it had never happened. And it was such an eye opening experience. And even in that moment, I thought, wow, like, okay, I'm learning and as these stories started to pop up you know, with Reddit scale. Again, there was an r slash turkey community. So you'd start to see this same energy bubble up now on a platform that I had created. And I think at first I really also believed that same idea that over time, more speech would be the thing to combat it. But just like, I mean, we were in German class together for another two years, three years. I did my best, but I could not convince her. A living descendant survivor of genocide survivors could not convince her that that experience was real not to mention all the historical evidence. And, and again, I think I was still naive to think that, okay, we're in this enlightened age, information is everywhere, and they'll find it with enough truth. And now we encounter a world where most of the content we're going to end up seeing is either somewhat or fully AI-generated in the years to come, and I worry that it will become even harder for truth to win in the long run if, if we don't do anything about it.
4: So when you have these unaccountable, unelected kings, which is precisely correct, who are being licked up and down by people all day long, and you know all about that. well. Well, (laughs) just saying, just saying. You know what I'm talking, how difficult it is to resist. Sure. They live in increasingly small bubbles with increasing power. What can be done about that? Because you talk about creating these new network communities, Mm. these other. It just doesn't happen because of the convenience factor, because everybody is either, and the new AI stuff is all owned by the same people or the same groups of people. There's some new players, um, and they're more thoughtful. I would say Sam Altman is much more thoughtful um, and at least talks about some of the problems, um, which they never did. We'll see if he means it. I think he does, but we'll see if he has control of it. Deb, first, what can be done when you have this big tech that is unaccountable, is the most powerful, has lobbied out any kind of regulation? Um, every, you know, Amy Klobuchar had a series of bills that were just decimated. Every month, she'd call me. I'm like, she goes, I'm going to get it through this month. I'm like, no, you're not. And she didn't, because they spent $110 million to stop her. Same thing's going on right now with Lena Kahn at the FTC. There's a Justice Department thing. They, they don't have as many people. To say that the US government is not strong enough to this group, I, I don't say that lightly, but they're not. Europe has tried a little harder, um, but it's not as effective. This, these are mostly US companies in many ways. What should be done then? We can't rely on the kindness of Mark Zuckerberg. No, we can't. He's a very nice person, by the way. He's not the worst. Yeah, and
5: low bar. This has to come from us. Um, and I, I know that's a little cliche that you know we the people, but I I do see you know it's how how old is the World Wide Web and everything that's built built on top of it Reddit and all these roughly a human generation, so that's how long it takes to actually learn lessons of what we have actually created. And of course, there's a lot of you know we're talking about the positive side um, of, of social media of the internet. That's there. We don't want to lose that. Um, But we have learned a set of lessons, and I think the growing awareness. I spent a lot of time. We're designing um, a a social network. That's a mobile app. We've been designing with high school age youth, and one of the subtexts, as we spend time with you know these are fifteen year olds, sixteen year olds, they know something's wrong. They do, right? My sons do certainly. And so the the kind of latent demand for something different. Um, I think is there, it's taken us a while to figure out something's wrong. Um, And I think having the imagination to build alternatives, um, and I'm not looking for regulation to solve this. I'm not looking for um, the the handful of people- Even basic
4: privacy legislation, even basic algorithmic transparency legislation.
5: Some of that, again, I I am-
4: You know how many bills there are regulating the internet, zero. Yeah zero and one and there's one that helps them broad immunity
5: i mean also you have to be specific of where we have a pretty broken uh political system yes, in the I u.s right? I, i've noticed that yeah. recently <laughs> in congress there but i think the, they couldn't um,
4: order lunch at this point but honestly I,
5: I think what is becoming so what i've noticed is I, i've you know since 2016 my own work has pivoted from analyzing what's going on in social media to designing alternative. And we spent a lot of time, um, when you get into a room, convincing people there's a problem or something we should be working on. That's no longer, I don't spend any time on that. So in terms of, people know it. And there's an appetite, there's a latent demand. So that's what makes me, I think, somewhere between hopeful and optimistic. It's that it it is not reining in the current um, yeah, I would agree. I had I, I, my two
4: older sons, are, I was like, why? Are, I was like, why aren't you on those things? And they usually say, it's a bunch of assholes yelling at each other. I don't really feel yeah. like and, participating.
5: And and the last thing I'll say is, um, you know, on this, there's also a question of time horizons, right? And some of what we have to do it'll take, you know, if it took a human generation to learn these lessons, it may not take another 25 years to adopt new habits, form new habits, but it's going to take a while. And meanwhile, the world is burning.
0: Alexis, how do you look? uh, You know, I spend my time now investing seven, seven, six is the the firm and this generation of CEOs, to your point, though, especially the ones in their like, let's say, early 20s, even late 20s, feel so much wiser than I did at that age, for sure. And I do think the platforms, the things that they're going to build. I, this feels, I don't know what it was like in Germany, I don't know, 1400s, whenever Gutenberg got started, right? But I presume there were a bunch of Germans running around being like, yeah, we can all make books now. And some <laughs> of them were like, we'll make Bibles, right? Because you needed this truth societally for people to believe in that, was, that, was that time. But not long thereafter, was a newspaper because they probably reached a tipping point where they're like, I'm sick and tired of Hans telling me what's going on in the world. Like, we need someone whose job it is to actually keep tabs on whoever's running Stuttgart
4: Yeah, and let I'm us know. I'm liking history right? by Alexis O'Neill. You know, I, I was a history major
0: here, so I <laughs> yeah. gotta, gotta hustle yeah. it. But okay. like, I, I hope, to your point, that's the moment we're in. And, and I, I, I am a techno-optimist, guilty as charged, that, that I do think that pendulum will swing back, I think, even swifter than we realize. And I do think we're seeing a turning point here with everything going on in the Middle East. Where, if it has not become abundantly clear that we need something better to figure out the world, it's it's right there, and the urgency is here. And then my only hope is that there's a significant number of people who actually want this version, because the dope. We didn't even talk about the gamification of it, right? Every one of us builds our platforms, whether it's social media or whether it's the app to get you to remember to drink water. Like we're all building to capture attention and get you to come back and whatever you're building, whatever the next generation has to be as addictive, frankly, to win, but in a way that you know doesn't further disrupt democracy.
4: Yeah, I feel like it's interesting because I, I don't think they're gonna pass legislation. Incredibly, I don't believe they will. Um, but I do believe, for example, some of the bills that may pass include the ability to sue people, that they will not be protected by section, like the new generative AI stuff looks like it's not protected. And one or two good lawsuits do tend to clean up some things. And that, to me, is until our legislators really get serious, the only hope, honestly, in terms of getting things done is that if they feel pressure, legal pressure, it will, it's what happened with cigarettes, what happened with cars, and it, it might be the same thing. All right. Anyway, thank you guys thank you. so much. Thank, thank you. you.
2: Stapling bread on trees. Oh, that was funny. Have you seen that? Do you know what that is? No, I know it's a thing. I know. I went down the internet rabbit hole. It seems a little wasteful. There's bread that is literally stapled on trees. There's 300,000 people on that Reddit. And then 3,000 followers on another Reddit that's a little bit more violent called bread nailed to trees. Very Walter in office space. But the most interesting part of that conversation, I think, was Alexis's reflections on being young and founding this thing in 2005 that everyone... Yeah. You know, Christian, Megan, and I were talking about this. This, He didn't have any idea what he was creating, and nobody seemed to imagine the power that it could have. And you were, of course, there during this time. I was. I did imagine the power it could have. I think they were, you know, that's what I was surrounded by, people who didn't realize what
1: they were doing. And anyone who was even slightly an adult could understand what was going to happen. But they were like that. Everything was up and to the right, and they had both no accountability, and they also had no idea what was about to happen.
2: Deb talked about this point of the intimacy gradient, mm-hmm. the house and the every room, and all of a sudden, instead of being on the porch or in the living room, you're all mm-hmm. of a sudden in someone's bedroom, right? You're right. all of a sudden having this interaction. Um, that was kind of useful architectural metaphor. Yeah. I think that the, the, the fact that there are no real
1: rooms on the internet, that everything is one place, has been a real problem. Again, it encourages misbehavior. Um, and so I think what he was talking about is installing, as, as he said with conversations, how would you behave in the real world? And Mm -hmm. how might you bring it to the online world? I don't know if that's possible, because people feel uninhibited. It's like being drunk or something. And normal lines are crossed really easily. And now, of course, you're seeing those lines now crossing in real life, right? Mm -hmm. Now they're doing it in real life. There was a very dramatic picture of this uh, house thing that's happening right now. And uh, a reporter asks a normal question about the the new latest nominees election denial and the the group of republicans jeer at uh, at it looked like an online thing like this is what you would do online hey come on And it was embarrassing.
2: Well, there's almost no distinction anymore between online and offline. And people are are, um, performing for their viral moment or social media or whatever is happening. That's exactly right. It leaped one way and then the other way. Now it's leaped again in this really
1: uh, unfortunate way. And, uh, you know, what was so unfortunate is most of the people standing there knew how to behave in real life. But now they don't care anymore.
2: Yeah. And I don't know. Alexis had the caveat that pseudo-anonymous is better than anonymous. I feel that is somewhat true, but I was talking to someone who does, um, Kyle Drop, who has this company called Morning Consult. They are a survey company. And I was asking, you know, how do you find people respond on the phone versus online? And he directed me to something from the Pew Research Center, which said, look, people are more likely to express that they're unhappy, say, in their marriage Mm -hmm. um, or in their private life. So maybe they're potentially being more honest with you on things like that. But they're also more likely to express online that they have more extreme views of someone like Hillary Clinton. So it's hard to dissect, like, what's truth and what's posturing on the internet. Yeah. You know, are people just being polite in real life and what they say on the internet is really what they think? Or are they... well?
1: I think there is there is a good thing about being polite in real life, isn't there? There is a keeping it to yourself in some ways and having your own internal dialogue going on. We don't want everybody to tell us everything they're thinking at any one moment. And I think the Internet has freed that, and then it's shifted back to real life
2: where we have to listen to everybody's opinion at all times. I, I think the biggest thing is that it reduces it. It's putting it into this tiny point, which is if you were to listen not just to someone's thesis statement but their whole argument, you could probably find something to grab onto and talk about. But yeah. if we only react to one another's headlines, that is not a good conversation. No, that's where you, you end up. in online, it becomes completely reductive.
1: And it has to be because of the medium. But again, then it moves into real life where it's just jeering at each other or one side jeering in this case. Yeah.
2: And this conversation was about big tech's role in democracy. You didn't get deeply into disinformation or AI or foreign interference, but all of those, of course, are important.
1: Yeah. But, you know, I think what's happening that's genuine is just as bad, right? Donald Trump really is not even hiding it. It's not tricky. I was just spending some time with some disinformation people, and they're just as worried about what's genuinely going out over the wires as what is being faked.
2: 100%. Do you think that Deb's platform, Cortico, that he has will have any real-world effect?
1: No. I'm sorry to say, I've seen a lot of these attempts to make good conversation online. People are attracted to the accident, they're attracted to the yelling. I think one thing that's good is there's sort of there's no central place now, and people don't like a really bad experience, which is why you're seeing mm-hmm. the declines in Twitters or whatever X's. Uh, all the recent studies are showing huge declines. Yeah. and it's because it's a gross experience, um, even if they like parts of it, and they do. Um, I do too. It's becoming grocery It's like being in a city that's decaying. And
2: while you may like that city, the decaying is really hard to take. And so you stop going as much. The scale is really hard to reach nowadays, but I do think there's generational scale, like millennials a lot are on Instagram. Millennials are on TikTok. And yeah. so YouTube, I think, has always been an interesting community as well. Yeah. We'll see what happens. It's definitely a moment of change
1: for all these things. And we'll see what happens. It would be nice if there was a nice place to talk online Um, And there are, in some cases, when it's very directed. But it's degenerated quite a lot because of what it's done to our brains.
2: Well, we will continue talking about this in other episodes. Democracy, disinformation, just in time for a big election cycle. There's always another one coming. Anyway, hopefully, hopefully there's always another one coming. All right. Let's read us out. Today's show was
1: produced by Naeem Araza, Christian Castro-Rosell, and Megan Burney. Special thanks to Mary Mathis and also to Aaliyah Jackson, who engineered this episode. And thanks to UVA's Karsh Institute. Our theme music is by Academics. If you're already following the show, congratulations. You know the earth isn't flat. If not, go back to stapling bread on trees. Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Search for On with Kara Swisher and hit follow. Thanks for listening to On with Kara Swisher from New York Magazine, the Vox Media Podcast Network, and us. We'll be back on Monday with more.